This podcast is a production of Unfiltered Studios. If you would like to know more about joining Unfiltered Studios, please visit our website at unfpod.com for more information. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Spartacus Coffee is made for and made by hustlers, entrepreneurs, peak athletes, self-starters, and free thinkers. Our community of coffee drinkers believe in lifting each other up to be the best version of ourselves we can be. On top of that, every sale goes to the nonprofit organization No Kid Hungry, a national effort to end childhood hunger in America. To learn more about that and order some of the best, richest coffee you can find at an affordable price, go to SpartacusCoffee.com and be sure to use my promo code. It's pretty simple. It's Jay Burke, which is J-A-Y-B-U-R-K-E, and get 10% off your first order. Remember, Spartacus Coffee. We fuel the grind. We fuel the success. We fuel champions. We are Spartacus. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. If you want to find bad news about the state of journalism these days, it's an easy find. A quick Google search will tell you everything you need to know. In January 2024 alone, witnessed 538 layoffs across the industry, encompassing print, broadcast, and digital media. Meanwhile, the U.S. continues to witness the decline of local newspapers, while other major news organizations have also reduced their newsroom staff in the years preceding 2024. These layoffs underscore the bleak reality facing the news industry. My next guest offers a candid perspective on the actions he believes one should take in its wake. Hey, Jeff Perlman here, a veteran journalist. And um, I was thinking with the layoffs at the LA Times, with the news at Sports Illustrated, I've had a bunch of people ask me, like, what do you do if you're a young journalist? What do you do? Um, you have to make yourself indispensable. Uh, ask your bosses if it's okay if you start a podcast too. Build up an amazing Instagram following. Start doing TikTok videos to the point where you are known as the guy on TikTok. Find a million different ways. Build up your Twitter following. It's, it's stupid. It's annoying. But it's the same kind of way you survive as an author in books these days. Is you, you make it so you have this built-in audience of people who are waiting for your book or what do you have to say. And you just have to become an expert. The landscape is shifting with print media, broadcast news, and traditional media giants resembling dinosaurs, oblivious to the approaching comet. Just as the printing press, the telegraph, and television revolutionized media in their times, there's no doubt the internet has sparked major shifts in journalism. The rise of bloggers and user-generated content challenged traditional journalistic methods, and the growth of aggregators like Google News have centralized it while reducing reliance on individual journalists. However, this transformation doesn't spell doom for everyone. It heralds the emergence of a new era in journalism, which could bring both positive and negative outcomes. Breaking it down for us, I had the absolute privilege of interviewing Jeff Perlman. Jeff is a sports writer whose accolades include being a New York Times bestselling author of 10 books. Notably, one of his books served as the inspiration for the HBO TV series, Winning Time. In our conversation, we explore Jeff's journey from working at local newspapers to his time at Sports Illustrated, tackling the hurdles print media faces, the importance of humility in writing, and much more. 
Jeff also imparts wisdom for budding journalists and authors on how to pitch stories, craft book proposals, and cultivate an online audience. This discussion is particularly valuable for those aiming to succeed in the dynamic realm of journalism, offering insights from someone who has weathered the storm of newsrooms, yet successfully navigated the challenging landscape of the digital age. But find out for yourself in an episode I'm calling From Print to Pixels, Jeff Perlman on Journalism's New Norm. Watch out, you might get what you're after. Hello and welcome to the With Jay Burke Show. My name is Jason Burke, and though I'm technically the host of this podcast, it's the guests who truly take top billing. This is a place for curious minds who enjoy civil and sometimes meandering conversation. If you appreciate a few laughs and want to come away with new knowledge about subjects that aren't always easy to break down, then you're the person I want listening to this podcast. Today, we have a true veteran of the journalism world joining us, Jeff Perlman an American sports writer and best-selling author who has had a remarkable career that began working his way up through many stops in local and high school newspapers. But after his college years, he delved into sports, features, and crime reporting at the Tennessean in Nashville. Jeff's big break came in 1996 when Sports Illustrated recognized his talent and persistence in pitching story ideas, bringing him on board. He honed his reporting and writing skills at SI, eventually penning some incredible books. Notable among them are The Bad Guys One about the 1986 New York Mets, Love Me, Hate Me, delving into the enigmatic Barry Bonds, Boys Will Be Boys, capturing the Dallas Cowboys dynasty, and Showtime, chronicling the Los Angeles Lakers dynasty. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. I think when you, uh, when you call someone a true veteran, I think what you're actually saying is old. Well, I'm catching up there, so I don't think you're much older than me. All right, fair enough, though. I'm cool. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I I know what you mean, though. Like um, working with people and stuff, you don't know you're the older guy until you say something, and then the kids kind of look at you like, "What are you talking about?" In my world, I get it when people say, uh, "Oh man, I've been reading you since I was a kid," and I'm like, (laughs) "Uh, "Great, it's wonderful. Thank you." Well, listen, you actually have one of my favorite books, uh, The Bad Guys Won, because I'm a huge Mets fan. And that year in particular, so just to give away my age a little bit, I was um, I was seven years old when the Mets won the World Series in 86. And uh, obviously, I thought it was going to be easy being a fan because that was my first real experience. But just a little background on that. I just I remember that series so well even as a seven-year-old, because I remember thinking baseball was insane. Um, you had, you know, that guy parachuting in uh, with the Let's, Let's Go Mets parachute. And then obviously you had the comeback in, in game six. And I remember my parents letting me stay up late. So it just I just fell in love with the Mets back then. And, you know, maybe they did me a disservice, but that's where I am. So I respect so, that. Yeah. So definitely one of my favorites. And yeah, I know that obviously you've had some, some experience, I guess, with heartbreak with that too. Sure. I mean, as a kid, it certainly, yeah, 
had my teams that sucked. Definitely happens. Are you um, all New York sports? Yes. I mean, growing up, I was Mets, Jets, Nets, Islanders. And um, as an adult, I don't really care. Um, I sort of lost my fandom, but I, the only team I even remotely pay attention to still are the Jets. And that just I'm a Jets fan. Oh. Yeah, I'm a Jets fan too. And it's like, it's terrible. Well, it, football is easy because at least it's the least amount of time you have to devote to it. I had, um, I played pickup basketball every weekend out here in California. And there was a young kid who was, he's a cowboy fan and he was complaining. He was complaining about Dak Prescott. And I was like, could I have Zach Wilson? And he's like, I would trade Dak Prescott for Zach Wilson. And I was like, sold. We could do that. We could do that do right that. now. We are available for that. Deal. <laughs> we'll do that right now. <laughs> yeah. But I know what you mean. Like, it's got to be different though for you. Because there's a difference when you're a kid rooting for these teams and thinking about what it must be like in a locker room and engaging with these people. But you actually have the experience of, of doing all. I'm sure that kind of might. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the, the proper term to use for it, but I guess it, I could see your fandom getting a little like uh, tainted by that. Well, you can't be a fan and, and cover, I don't think. I, I know there's, right. there are arguments about this, but I personally, I think uh, it'd be weird. It'd be weird if I was like covering Major League Baseball and rooting for the teams. I've never understood that. And um, I'm not sitting in judgment of anyone. People can do what they want. For me personally, it would be impossible to be a Mets fan and be going to spring training and seeing what you see and looking behind the curtain, all that stuff. It just, it wouldn't make sense to me. So I, um, I divorced myself from fandom. Even the Jets, like I don't really care. It right. doesn't affect my happiness at all. If a game's on, I watch, I follow the Jets. I like complaining about them because it's fun. Yeah. But do I really care? No. Yeah. Uh, that's also just as you get old, at least for me. I mean, I see people who freak out and their day is ruined, but I I think I have a healthy awareness that real life is very different from, from what you see on, on sports. Like, it's just, that's just a distraction for me. Like, I can, I watch the game, I root, and then I'm done with it. You yeah. Know, but that's the joy of sports. That's sports at its best. And the funny thing is, I watched with my son, the, the Lions-Niners game, and I found myself really annoyed with the Lions. Like, I was really annoyed with the Lions. Like, what are you doing? What are you, why are you not kicking the field like that stuff? Yeah. But as soon as it was over, it was over. Like, I, I was done. And the, any frustration left very quickly. And actually, that's why I don't really understand sports gambling. Like, to me, mm -hmm. the joy of sports is watching a game, having a good time, you're not too invested. It's just fun. It's great athleticism, all that stuff. But hanging on every field goal and every, I don't get it. For me personally, I would never think. Yeah, I never, it never did anything for me either. It's just, I don't know. I guess people who just like having something at stake at it or going to do that, um, yeah. never did anything for me either. But I had to add the well, it's a huge, obviously, industry now with all the sports betting and things like that. That's where you get a lot of these. That's, I was listening to like conspiracy theories this weekend from from parents because I uh, my daughter plays softball, so uh, you know they're talking about how the NFL wants this lined up, which I, I'm sure there is something to that, but do they really affect the outcome of games and stuff? I don't. I don't think so. I don't think they can do that. You know, obviously they. It's like in basketball. You know, they'd rather have the New York market and the LA market, obviously, but they don't. There's not much they can do with the with what the outcome is. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, I had reached out to you. You had a video out just talking about what you would do, obviously, with the state of journalism now and how you would pitch yourself. And I guess, 
you know, make yourself intangible within the marketplace with whatever you're doing. And I, I thought it was great advice because, you know, obviously the landscape of definitely print media has changed dramatically since we were kids, you know, adapting to that change and, and looking at the role of technology is important for anybody coming into this. And I did see you got a little flack for it. Sure did. Um, yeah, I was, I, and I was kind of confused by that just because it's not like, you know, it's, it's just an observation that you gave and it's take it or leave it. I don't understand why it was such a big, I don't want to say a big to do, but yeah, I saw some people giving you flag for it. It was a little confusing, but, um, I know, I mean, I guess kind of, it's like, I, I think some people took it as like, which, you know, I can't, people take things as they take things. So yeah. I think some people thought like, here we are at this really awful moment where all these layoffs, blah, blah, blah. And some old guy is chiming in with his Pollyannic advice, advice for, uh, how to make it and, you know, an outdated thing in, a, in an industry that's just destroying people. So I actually get it. I understand why people are like annoyed by it. And sometimes you, um, I do think sometimes in social media, I don't know, you don't always have to say something. And maybe that was an example where I didn't have to say something. I don't know. You know, uh, I didn't have to say something. So I, I'm, I get it. I actually do. Get it. Well, but you think they're looking at it at a point, like from the standpoint of saying, this is a guy who's already made it. Who doesn't have to worry and like, I don't like a hierarchical thing or. I think yeah, they're probably looking at it as in shut up, old man. You don't know what yeah. the hell you yeah. I will say the thing that I actually, that irked me about it, you know, whatever, quote unquote, younger writers wrote about it. And <laughs> they're all like, here's a guy who he left Sports Illustrated to write books 20 years ago. What does he know about blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah. that was actually a pretty lazy interpretation of my career. Like I, um. Since I left SI, I wrote for Newsday. I was a columnist at ESPN.com, a columnist at The Athletic, a columnist at Yahoo, a columnist at CNN.com, um, freelance for a million different places. I had two different podcast series, one with Audible that I pitched. And I'm not saying any of this to brag. I'm not saying any of it's even a big deal. I'm saying it's not like I've been sitting around doing nothing. Right. And I also do believe, like strongly, that at the end of the day, if you want to survive in this business, again, it's not easy. No one's saying it's easy to survive in this business. Nobody. But if you want to survive, I do believe you have to diversify and make yourself as marketable as possible. And even if that won't land you at a place, like even if, okay, you, you're covering Wichita State basketball for some newspaper and you start a podcast and do all this and a sub stack and all this, and the newspaper fires you and people would say, well, that didn't help you. Well, maybe not, but it makes you more marketable for the next job. Even if that job's in PR, if that job's working for a team. Or it gives you the legs to maybe start a substack where, okay, the local newspaper is no longer covering Wichita State basketball, but there's still a hunger for Wichita State basketball. So maybe that's a way you make alternative income. You become the expert on Wichita State basketball. You have the podcast on Wichita State basketball. You have the substack on Wichita State basketball. And all of a sudden you become the expert. I'm not saying it's a solution. I never right. said, but I do think there's something to be said for being as marketable and diverse in your abilities as possible. That is always trying to, so. Yeah, which I thought, you know, if you were being a fossil about it, you were actually making an astute observation to me. And I'm not saying that because you're here. I'm just saying like, you're talking about, you know, going into podcasting, using TikTok, using everything at your, your disposal, you know, this arsenal to make yourself relevant. So it was, you know, I think it's sound advice for what's happening today. Um, it annoyed me because I think, I did get it, but it's also a lazy reaction. I'm 51 years old, right? And you could be like, oh, he's an older reporter. But like, I'm also 
I'm not saying this is like, I'm pretty current. Like I am pretty, <laughs> I did start my own podcast. I do have my own Substack. I am hyper involved on social media. Like I'm not some guy who doesn't know how to turn on his computer. And I do think, and I teach college journalism and I just think I am aware of the current market. I am aware of all the struggles, right? I totally 1 million percent get it. But these, these people who are basically telling young people, just give the fuck up. Don't worry about it. It's not worth it. Don't even pursue this book. Like that really bothers me. I'm not going to be that guy because I've gotten yeah. so much joy and so much pleasure out of this profession. I'm not just giving up on it. And I feel like some people just want you to say, this is the worst. Give up. Don't even bother. Go flip houses. I don't want to be yeah. that. I yeah. Know. I found a, I guess it was an interview you did. Which, you know, I didn't know a lot of your background growing up and you've kind of been in, in the woods a little bit there. So you kind of, you are a guy who's done, I think you're, you're thought of primarily as a sports guy, but you've kind of been in the war rooms and, you know, you, you've written about crime, like the local blotters, the stuff that's really, I don't want to say it's mundane, but it kind of is mundane, I guess. You've done everything as far as your career is concerned, your, but your claim to fame, I guess, would be Sports Illustrated and then the books that you did. And those are mostly sports pieces, but you've done the hard work to get there. I mean, I think so. I've definitely, yeah. definitely been around a little bit, you know? Yeah. But that's, I think that's, that's an important part of the story. Um, because I, I do think we live in a weird time, right? Um, but kind of amazing because everybody does have a voice. Like I have a podcast. I know it was 20 years ago. Could I get a podcast? I have no clue. Um, but I could just do that cause I could buy the equipment and then I, you know, I set this up and, and I'm talking to you. Um, dreams come true. Right. And, and the thing is though, I, do you think that some, there's some issue with that though? Like it's almost too easy to do and people maybe expect too much. In other words, I could start my own sub stack and talk about whatever the hell I want, Sure, you know, and yeah, I'm a guy who studied journalism too. Um, I mean, I've written for outlets and stuff, but I was never, uh, you know, obviously whatever happened with it. But I liked what you said in one of them. Like you learned the difference between writing 5,000 words and making it 1,000, which is, like I said, the little experience I have, it's so, your ego has to take a hit for it because everything, when you're putting stuff out that while you're writing it anyway, like I'll think like, I'm like, I'm, I'm God. You know what I mean? And then it's when I go to put it out, I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, and you freak out, but you know, trying to taking, you're putting your heart and soul into something and to try to cut it down is, is such an experience of, you know, it's just, you can't find the right word, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, you have to take the ego out of it. So I think you've kind of learned that. And I guess that's a long way of saying maybe people don't get to do that as much. Mm. I guess it's kind of good or bad. Uh, on the one hand, I think it's really cool that you have a podcast and yeah. that you can be heard. And anyone, you're a college kid. I mean, when I was in college, it wasn't like, there weren't that many avenues. I worked for this campus right. newspaper. I wrote for the student newspaper. I worked for the campus radio station, wrote for the student newspaper. Those are my outlets. Nowadays, I always say this to my students where I teach and college students ask for advice. Like there is no excuse for, for not starting a podcast. There's no excuse for not having a Substack. Become the local expert on the subject that you want to, like, you have all these opportunities to do things and that's great. Now, I think one of the major problems is people, certainly in this age of disinformation, people no longer feel like they know who to trust or 
they just trust the wrong places. So right. it's why, you know, all of a sudden, like just as an example, like Donald Trump labeling the New York Times as fake news or labeling any place where he doesn't like what they say about him as fake news. Like maybe people view it as kind of funny. Ha ha. I never have. Like I view it as kind of dangerous. Like I just yeah. think, because you need to be able to trust someone. And like, I would never advise someone to go to my Substack for hard news. Like that's ridiculous. Like I'm not, I'm not writing hard news. I may have opinions, but I'm not writing hard news. And I just think nowadays people go to the worst places to get their information. And that leads to a lot of misinformation. So the startup of, you know, the rise of people like, I don't know, Ben Shapiro or Clay Travis or whoever, people who don't actually know what the hell they're talking about, who don't know how to report, who are just regurgitating and interpreting, interpreting, that's not news. Like that's yeah. their, and that's fine if they want to offer their opinion. I have no problem with that. You shouldn't be going to them for your news. And a lot of people are going to these sources left and right and getting really yeah. shit biased, uh, inaccurate news. And oh, I mean, even like if you think about it, Stephen A. Smith, I had no beef with Stephen A. Smith. He's a wonderful entertainer. He has found a niche. Good for him. You shouldn't be going to him for your sports news. Like he's not reporting news. He's Agreed. getting on the news. And I just think a lot of people don't understand the difference. So I, I scream about this to the hills, right? So um, I'm, I mean, I do a lot of politics on here too. And I'm a big history guy. So that all always leads into politics because that's like just the history of now and stuff. My parents were really into it, but they're more like, uh, like Reagan conservatives. Uh -huh. and, uh, I kind of changed from that, but they watched like Fox News. Oh, no. Bonkers. Bonkers. And um, I know a lot of people who watch that and it's, I, I have the same opinion of, MSNBC and even CNN. CNN used to be better at least. Now they're just the deep end with some of the stuff. But I'm like, that's not news. It's just opinions. Like it, it, that's, you know, which is, which is fine to some degree if that's what you're looking for, but not, don't call yourself like a news net and sell yourself that you are, aren't, you know, just entertainment, because I think that's an important distinction. What you're talking about with like Stephen A. Smith, right? ESPN has a lot of entertainment. It's like, it's all, you know, a lot of it is just pushing emotions because emotions will, will sell, will keep eyeballs on, on the screens or wherever they're looking. And it, yeah, it drives, it, that's one of my pet peeves, you know, my dad probably, cause he lives with us now. So he, it probably drives him crazy. Cause when they walk past and he's watching, what, I'm always cursing under my breath. Cause I just, I just find it, you know, it's definitely hurting people more than it's helping. Definitely. And, we, and, and we don't have that trusted source that you talk. I've talked about this in an old podcast that I was in that we just don't have, you know, that, that trusted source, no matter what it is. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah. It's really bad. And I, I just think like there was a time period when I was growing up and you, when you would turn on the news at whatever o'clock and uh, I think it was five o'clock local news, six o'clock national. Yeah. And you get Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, Dan and it would be the news reported as the news. This is what happened. Here are the events, blankety blank. Walter Cronkite, this is what happened. Here are the events, blankety blank. And now what it's turned into is, this is what happened. Here's what I think about it. You're yeah. going to watch me if you agree with what I think. And if you disagree with me, you're not going to watch me. So basically, no one is ever hearing anything to challenge their opinions. And right. then you go on whatever, Twitter, or Facebook, and someone says, Trump is the best. And you're like, fuck Trump. And they're like, no, Trump is the best. Well, you're a fucking libtard. Well, you're a blah, blah, blah. And like, nothing ever happens. It just, 
we never learn, we never evolve. And that's how we're stuck in this era where, I mean, just being honest, you have a guy, Donald Trump, who thrives on disinformation and maybe he's perfect people, for this time. Because he's convinced people you can't trust anyone who isn't right. him. And I still, for the life of me, I wrote a book about the US and He owned a team. And for the life of me, I can't understand I how that. anyone would ever trust him of all people. It's bonkers, but he's capitalized on it. Yeah. I, I, you, anybody who's listened to this podcast knows there's no love law. I've never respected the man. I mean, this is way before he was in politics. I thought he was kind of a buffoon who just was sensational. You know what I mean? He just made sensational thing. Um, I guess he was a good marketer in some way. It was okay yeah, when it was just entertainment. That's the thing. When it was, well, just, it was just, yeah, yeah exactly. Gives shit? It doesn't matter. Fine. He's funny. Show's fun. Big deal. But when you get into now policy and actually hurting people and I mean, the, the state of just dialogue in America is so damaged. I was thinking about little things nobody really seems to talk about because they're not that important, but that bother me. Like, just as an example, in the old days, not that long ago, a president would be elected and he would invite all his predecessors and he would say, you'd have them all together and they'd make a joke and you'd see Reagan with Carter and you'd see Clinton with Bush and it would be ha ha, ho ho. And you felt actually good about that. And when there was a big decision, you know, someone would hold a press conference. They would say, I've reached out to the other presidents. I've let them all know, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's over. Like, that is actually- Yeah, that's done. That is just base level civility, which is really important in setting the tone for this country, is over. It has ended. If Trump wins, Biden will not attend his inauguration. I can't blame him. If Biden wins, Trump will not concede the election. He literally will concede the election. And this is where we are. And I, yeah. it's just, it sucks. I wonder, um, you know, I was thinking about it like a few nights ago, obviously, you know, we, we talked about the good old days of journalism, but I mean, you know, you had, um, like 120 years ago, 130 years ago, you had yellow journalism, right? I mean, which was, which was pretty awful and that I don't want to, it's not the same thing now, obviously, but in context, there was a lot of misinformation spread around. There was a lot of, I mean, there was a lot of racism in those pieces, you know, there's a lot of demonization of things like marijuana. We have the drug war and things like that. I wonder if we have to try to work through this time or if it's, it's too far ahead of uh, the technology. I don't think our brains are. I, I agree with you. It's kind of sad because we do have these opportunities to really actually use all this technology to, to foster, uh, people talking in a nice, in a kind way and getting information out and trying to solve things, but you know, we've used all these tools. They're just used for making money for whoever owns the, these entities you want to call it, whether it's the, the print media or, you know, all these social media platforms. And with the advent of AI, which, you know, I miss when AI used to just mean Alan Iverson. Um, now, I'm, now I can't stand when I hear it, but yeah, I, I think the same thing, right? So. AI is being used to really hack your brain. And I don't think the human brain is really capable of dealing with that. We're just too emotional and too attached to things. And yeah, I, I don't know. I worry and I hope I'm just wrong and I'm getting, you know, old as we were talking about. I don't like where we're heading. I agree. Yeah. Man, I don't know uh, where it goes from here. I always wonder too about everybody's reality because, you know, you don't really have a shared reality and when they talk about like the horrors you know people used to go around the 
the fire and talk or they used to go around the radio and listen or there was one TV in the family room and everybody sat around that and you're talking about maybe they watched uh, Walter Cronkite or something like that. We don't really have that. Like, you know, I have kids. Um, I have to tear them off their phones to talk to them. And their reality is totally different than mine is, but mine's different from my neighbor. I actually recently said to myself, I need to stop taking my my phone into the bathroom. And that sounds good. Sure, I'm not alone. And like, I used to read in the bathroom. You're not. You know, like, yeah, it's like something has changed in our brains and we need to sort of take it back. And I try day by day, but, you know, I fail a lot. So it's, yeah, it's rough, man. It's very difficult. I was always a questioner. I was always somebody who like tried to think of a big picture or like take a 10,000, what is it? 10,000 yard stare from above or whatever. But it's just so much easier when your brain says, I wonder how this works. And here I go, I got my phone and I could just find out instead of trying to think it through. But yeah, I've thought about that. Like, thought about that bathroom thing too, right? You used to have like a book there, but yeah, like I said. So we're going down a dire path here. So I'll try to bring it back. You know, I thought another thing that you talked about in your past was, I was talking a little bit about uh, ego before, and I'm not trying to call you anything, but you kind of said you were a little bit cocky back in the day. Um, How important is that to get over in order to make it in this business? I mean, I think I probably became a better writer when I realized it wasn't very important. Uh, um, I used to think, you know, there are certain writers, I was thinking in a way like Jason Whitlock is a good example. Um, not a fan, but whatever, aside, like I've always thought Jason Whitlock is a guy who thinks the most, who the most important thing in his life is his writing and everything about his writing matters and what people say about his writing matters. When I was a young writer, I was that way. You know, I remember being at the Tennessee and I was a young writer at the Tennessee. And I was so cocky and so insufferable. And I thought everything I wrote was brilliant. And I was better than this guy and better than that guy. And years later, like at at the same time, I was this cocky little asshole thinking how great I was compared to everyone else. Most of the people around me were doing their jobs. And then they were taking their kids to Little League Baseball. Or they were going home and spending time with their spouse. Or going to a movie. You know, like they had real lives. They actually did things in their lives that mattered more than the lead to a high school basketball game. Um, and I think when you get to that point, it actually makes you better. I think having kids makes you better. As a, for me personally, having kids made me a lot better because it just changes the perspective and you get over yourself. And I think once you get over yourself, you're more aware and you're just, you're just more human. I don't know. I, you can't be an asshole. You can't be an asshole and empathetic. And a big part of writing is being empathetic and seeing other people and understanding other people. And if you're so caught up in your own greatness, it's very hard to be empathetic. That's a good point. There is something about having kids that just, well, because, you know, you, you have to give things up and it just puts a perspective on, on life that's a little different. Um, you really find out that there's things that aren't that important outside of your little network, mm-hmm. you know, changes the view of the world for you. So I can see that. I kind of agree with you on, on Whitlock too. I actually yeah. feel bad for him. I don't know. Um, I mean, I can't stand him. I think he's a really bad presence and what he does bothers me. But kind of when I see him, I, a lot of times I just think, man, what a sad, pathetic little existence. Like he just feels unloved. Like he honestly, God, he feels unloved to me and I can suck at writing tomorrow. Maybe I do suck. Like whatever the case, like I have a wife who loves me. I have kids who love me. I have parents who love me. Like 
I feel loved, you know? And like at the end of the day, whether you're a good writer or a bad writer, you need stuff in your life that sort of takes you away from your own sense of self-importance. Right. Totally agree. Well, and I think it's, um, I think it's important too, to know, well, especially in writing, writing's such a weird thing because it's you and the paper or keyboard, whatever you want to call the screen. You're like, you are a part of whatever story you maybe try to keep yourself out of it, but it's really about other people and other, and whatever events are happening or, or things like that. So in Subway, you have to be, to be good, I think, is to take yourself out of it, is to not be part of the story. Obviously, you know, if you're, if it's something like an experience that you had, it's different. But I guess for what we're talking about, when you're talking about journalism or even sports or anything, it's really not about you. It's about what's happening or the person you're covering, et cetera. Like there, I guess there's no experience like being around people or in a newsroom or having an editor that, that can help a lot of people who are breaking in today. A lot of it's just, you know, these people are learning about it on their own. Is that a question? It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of like. If you want to retort to that, you can. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I had a lot of good people teach me along the way how to be a journalist. Yeah. Um, you don't have as much anymore. You don't have hands-on editors. It's just the manpower isn't there anymore. Um, you have to learn a lot from self-initiative. Journalism programs aren't what they were. Everything about journalism has changed so much. I just think it's, a, it's drastically different than when I was coming up. It's much, much harder. Do you think newspapers or print is going to go away at some point totally? Or do you think it'll always... I mean, books seem to still be selling, but, yeah. uh, but I don't know. I think, um, I don't think we're going to have print newspapers in a decade. I just don't, I don't see anyone buying them anymore. You know, I remember when I was at Sports Illustrated, you travel just as an example. So 20 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever it is. And, um, you'd get off a plane and who, the cleaning crew would have to go through and pick up all the news seat by seat by seat, pick up newspapers, newspapers on the seats, newspapers in the pockets. And, um. Now you don't see any, literally none. You see at the kiosk in the airport, some will have newspapers, most don't. Um, it's just like, they don't exist anymore. So I don't see how, I, I don't know. Hopefully newspapers will, it's just so grim. So I don't know. Should, yeah, it's, well, well, it's like you said, everything is, everybody has a screen though. So the newspaper is kind of outdated. Although I miss, I used to love, my dad would go to work. My dad was, uh, was in construction in, in New York. He was a union guy. You just come home with the newspaper and I look at the stats every day, you know, and it's just, I don't know, it's different because it's, I don't look at it every day. You know, I know what's going on maybe when I want to, but I don't sit there and look at like, I used to like, oh, this guy's batting average is here. Watch it every day. Like he's still on top by 10 points. He's still here. Or yeah. when there's three guys close to a hundred RBIs or whatever you want to talk about, but it's not, there's not that. And part of that's just like, I see it with my kids, right? They just grow up. It's so different, like, uh, the technology, cause it's just a part of them where me and you have kind of a, we're one of the last generations who has the frame of reference before and after, you know, the tech boom. Like I still remember, I still know how to use, uh, a rotary phone, but you know, I seamlessly started using the, the iPhone and that's where we are, but we're that last generation. I mean, I, I haven't used a rotary phone in probably 30 years, so. You might be ahead of me on that, but yeah, you know. <laughs> and there's going to be stuff, there's going to be stuff our kids use that their kids laugh at, you know, like iPhone, what the hell? You didn't have a chip in your head, you know, like, yeah, I think that, yeah, I think so 
you know, just the times change, people come along, things shift, technology shifts, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, no. So let me ask you this, because this was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. If you were, obviously you've, you've written a lot of books and done a lot of work to, to get the information involved. What would you say to somebody who, let's say, has some ideas, but, well, let me ask you this. When did you write your first book? Uh, it came out in 2003. All right. So you were, you were already writing for Sports Illustrated for a few years. Um, with the way the future is going, somebody who doesn't have that kind of credential, maybe, how would you go about it if you were there, if you were trying to write a book? Because I, I, I would assume having the credentials of Sports Illustrated help you get some of the interviews you got mm-hmm. to make these books. I mean, it depends what you want to write about. If you, to me, the best advice I ever heard as far as getting a book deal is it always helps to have an agent. And to me, so let's say you want to write a memoir about like your mother who battled cancer while making, I don't know, you go to Barnes and Noble or wherever, you go to the memoir section, you look at somewhat recent memoirs that are similar topic to what you want to write. You go to the acknowledgement section. They always thank their agent. You write down a bunch of agents and you reach out to them. You write a proposal for your memoir, why it's good. Not just why it's good, but why it can sell. has to be marketable. You're not going to get a book deal if a publisher thinks it can't sell more than 10 copies. So it has to be, well, this is, this is the audience and this is who it's intended to. And like, I don't care if people call me old, like you, it helps to build up a social media following. So you can show up and say to Harper Collins, um, this memoir about my grandma and candles, why I happen to have. 50,000 followers on Instagram, another 20,000 on Twitter. When it comes to the candle making community, I am the person, blah, 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 blah. So that's kind of how you do it. You know, if you, if you're a beat writer of a team, let's say you cover the Detroit Pistons for the athletic and you want to, uh, you want to write a piece about the Pistons historically bad season. Well, then you can go to them and say, look, I'm the beat writer for the Pistons. I have this expertise. I have this social media following my agent. I put together this proposal. This is a book I want to write, and it gives you a puncher's chance. Um, yeah. You know, the more of an expert you are, and the more you can come in and say, I have this following, so I can sell it to this many people, all that stuff very much helps. Yeah. That's good advice. So I, I never thought of that, the acknowledgments or, or anything like that. That's actually a clever way to do it. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Hey, everyone. Exciting news from Ancient City Designs. Rick and Tony Rosenbaum have a permanent booth at Coconut Barrel in St. Augustine, featuring over 200 local vendors. If you don't live in St. Augustine, find their stunning affordable pieces available for sale every day at ancientcitydesigns.com with free shipping across the United States. Though custom orders take about three weeks, Rick and Tony keep you updated every step of the way. Returns or exchanges aren't an option, but they're committed to nailing your vision. The husband-wife duo can't wait to craft something special just for you. Visit ancientcitydesigns.com or their booth at Coconut Barrel for local treasures and a special discount. Don't miss out. Discover the magic of Ancient City Designs today. And be sure to mention that Jay Burke sent you. now back to your regularly scheduled program how about does it worry you with all the ai stuff like the fact that i can just sit in there and just be like hey i want to write like jeff perlman talk about this you know it's not perfected now but obviously it's going to get better 
Yeah, I don't love it. I mean, there's a whole thing now where like, you know, AI is basically eating, like a lot of the, if you put in Bojack, if you ask chat, you know, if you ask your chat bot, whichever one you use nowadays, mm -hmm. uh, tell me about Bo Jackson. You know, all my books have been fed into these things. So tell me about Roger Clemens. You'll get information that I came up with. Tell me about Bo Jackson. You'll get information I came up with. I'm not getting paid. I'm not getting credited. Yeah. That's driving authors crazy. And I think fairly like that's stealing information. So that drives me crazy. I don't know if you could, I mean, if you, if you say, I want to write a book like Stephen King, AI, write a book like Stephen King. I don't know. Like I, you know, I'm writing a book about Tupac now and it's like, I know what I want to write about Tupac. I know how I want to go about it. I know what I'm looking for. And you can't replicate what's in someone's brain as far as their process. I can't, you, I can't write, I can't do what Rick Riley does because I don't know how Rick is thinking about his approach to writing something or Wright Thompson or whoever, Jamel Hill. I, I can't be in their brain. So I don't think you can fully duplicate how someone is, you know, because right. like I'm looking for things. I'm looking for very precise things that a computer can't read, but it's still jarring and alarming. It still sucks. Yeah. I wonder, you know, where, like, how good can these things get? But I, I feel the same way. It's kind of like, uh, there's just something to the human element in, in anything. Like even to bring it back, this, um, you can look at, you can take these, you know, saver metrics and all that kind of stuff. And they're definitely helpful, but sometimes the eye test you watch every day is still better than that human element. I don't know if that's a good analogy, but that's the way I'm thinking about it a little bit. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. I always wonder that too. I'm like, at some point they're going to have to come to grips with you guys need to get paid for that or, or something. I don't know how that would work, but it's kind of ridiculous that I can't steal your process. I can't see into your brain, but I can, I guess it's mimicking it somehow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it sucks. I don't like it. I don't, but I don't know what can I do? You know, like, I don't know what I can do about it. I feel like sometimes you're just fighting, you're pissing into the wind sometimes and you, uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't have a great answer. Yeah, no, I hear you. Plus it's so nuanced. Like you, you're getting into so many different legal aspects, but you know, hopefully somebody much smarter than us is going to figure that one out. We'll see. And, uh, you know, I wanted to talk to you, I guess, towards the end here. I don't know if you get asked about this a lot, but you, when you were with Sports Illustrated, so you got to interview John Rocker, which probably a lot of younger people don't even know about anymore. Don't remember. I definitely remember that. When you were getting that interview, what was going on in your mind as he's talking? Uh, this guy's insane. Why? Is yeah. He, I don't yeah. know why. But I mean, you work really hard as a reporter to get people to open up to you. So um, on the one hand, you're like, uh, this is great. This guy's actually telling me who he is. On the other hand, you're like, oh my God, this guy's a horrible racist pig. So um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's been 25 years, 25 years since I wrote that story, which is absolutely crazy. Um, you're like, as a journalist, your job is to listen. Like that's the best thing yeah. you can do. Listen. So I disagreed with 98% of everything he said during the course of that interview. He's a homophobic, racist, xenophobic asshole, like period, hard stop. But it's not my job to tell him that. It's my job to listen to him and try to understand who he is. It's actually a really good lesson for me as a journalist. Like people are going to say things that you find deplorable, but you're not there to debate. I wasn't there to debate John Rocker. Right, know? right. The other thing is, is like as a person, as a an agent set up that interview, well, you kind of got to know your client. I always thought that was a major fail from his agent. 
your client's a racist and your client's a bigot, you may not want to put them with the liberal Jewish reporter. Like, that's just not a great idea. Yeah. Well, and then just to give like context to that, to anybody listening, uh, John Rocker was around. He had a pretty big, pretty quick rise with the Atlanta Braves in the late 90s. I think after Kerry Leidenberg, I think it was Kerry Leidenberg was their closer, who was an all-star, uh, got hurt. And he just stepped in and, you know, for about two years, I mean, he was just lights out rocker and he threw, you know, he threw what everybody throws today. But back then it was, it was a lot, it seemed a lot harder, right? Because like now everybody throws under miles an hour, 98 or whatever. But he kind of got into the villain role, especially against the Mets. Uh, didn't like New York. I used to mess with the fans a lot. And then you actually, you had an interview with him where he just started spouting off things like he wouldn't want to be traded to the Mets or Yankees because going on the seven trains, like being in Beirut. And then he started getting real homophobic and, and just other terrible uh, racial slurs, you know, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm referencing. And I think after that, I mean, his career was never the same. He was never the same pitcher after that. That is true. Uh, and I don't know if it just affected him that much or, or what, but she, and I don't know, I was happy about it. I didn't mind, but you know, it was there. So, um, well, what are you working on now? Doing a Tupac book. Oh, that's right. You said that. Well, that's cool though. That's like, that's really different though for you, right? My first not sports book. Yeah. My 11th book of my first not sport. Yeah. I'm excited for it. So is that, is that like what you're looking to do in the future or you just take it like one step at a time? put everything in this book? Um, I don't know. I like the idea of diversifying, you know, how many basketball books can a guy write? You know, after a while you want to try something different. It's a real challenge. I'm not in the hip hop community. I haven't covered hip hop. I haven't covered music. I'm not a music. So I like kind of diving in and trying something brand new. So it's been uh, very challenging, very exciting. Lots of, lots of reading, you know, but <laughs> it's cool. So yeah. yeah. How long does that process take you to usually write a book or does it depend on what it is? About two and a half years. Two and a half years. Wow. And between, I guess, between interviews and then writing is a writing. Thing. Yeah. The overall, I usually go a year and a half ish, just interviewing people, no writing. And then I'll take the rest of the time and try to write the damn thing. And, uh, you know, then there's editing and finding photos and the whole, it's just, yeah. <laughs> I remember taking a f uh, fiction writing class and, and writing something and, and the, the teacher liked it. And he's like, now when you edit it. And I was like, in my head, I was like, are you kidding? You know how tough it was just to write that draft? Exactly. And I was like, I don't want to edit it. It's perfect. Uh, going back to your thing where you like, you know, you think everything you do is great. Um, and then I recently found that I was like, this is awful, awful. Um, yeah. So just leave it with that anecdote anecdote, but, um, yeah. So why don't you let us know where people can find you or, or anything you want to drop in here? Well, I have a Substack I do every week, a journalism Substack at uh, perlman.substack.com. And I, uh, even though I hate it with a passion, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, you know. Hear you. I hear you. That's a cesspool right there. Okay. I tell my kids because my son wanted to go on Twitter. He's on it now. But uh, I remember giving him like a fair warning. He's like, well, I like memes on there. I like these guys who do memes. And I'm like, all right, but like, just hear me out. I was like. If you want to say something like, just for example, you say something bad about Donald Trump, I'm like, and you might have a point that you think is right, never ending. Like Twitter is just different 
it's a cesspool of people just piling on and piling on. So it was like, just take that with a grain of salt. Indeed. I agree. So, well, all right. Thank you so much for uh, spending a little time with me today. I, uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to do it. And um, yeah, man, everybody check you out. Check out your books. I've read a couple and I've enjoyed everything I've read. So. Oh, man. Well, thank I, you for having me. Much appreciated. And I appreciate it. Thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen. The With Jaybird Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go directly to jaybirdshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape a while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon.